place names are a real part of the history of any town. And so when you're able to talk about those places or remember events that happened at those places or people who lived in those places, it's a way to connect yourself. You're listening to Happy Vermont, a podcast about people and places in the Green Mountain State. If you've been in Vermont long enough or visited for a while, you've probably noticed all the names of places around the state. I'm not talking about the names of towns, but rather unincorporated places like Maple Corner in Callis, Prosper in Woodstock, and Snowsville in Braintree. With a few exceptions, most of Vermont's place names go back to a town's early days, when sawmills and gristmills dotted the landscape. You might come across places that were named after a merchant, like Jonesville and Richmond, or something geographical or literal, like an area in Manchester known as Beartown. You'll find other place names where it's not exactly known how they came to be, like Peth in Braintree. Jane Dorney is a Vermont-based geographer, researcher, and place-based educator. She told me that place names in Vermont are incredibly durable. Since the 1950s, very few new places have been established that need new names. There have been a few, like the New North End in Burlington, the town of Sherburne being changed to Killington, and the newly renamed Hussey Brook in Townsend. In central Vermont, the small town of Braintree has about 1,200 residents. The town has a ridge that runs through the center of it with valleys on the east and west sides. Braintree has lots of unofficial places in town, with names like Snowsville, Mud Pond, Peth, Lost Nation, and Quaker Hill. Jackson Evans, president of the Braintree Historical Society, grew up in nearby Northfield. He studied at Ithaca College and UVM, and he's lived in Braintree for more than a decade. He now works for the Preservation Trust of Vermont. He's a historian, father, husband, and town lister who loves exploring Vermont Class 4 dirt roads on his bike. And he has a deep love for the town of Braintree, places in Braintree, and its history. Here's Jackson. Place names are funny. How they come about is either through municipal action, someone decides, okay, we're going to name this, or just local spoken word histories. So Snowsville is an unincorporated village in the northeast corner of the town of Braintree. It's situated along Ayers Brook, which is a tributary of the White River third branch of the White River. And it was settled initially as a water, you know, there was water along the brook and mills set up. And according to different histories in the mid 1800s, there were more businesses that moved there. And at the time, according to the history of Braintree that is kind of regarded as the be all end all, it was called Snow's Village after Jeremiah Snow who had been an earlier settler and had operated mills along Ayers Brook. And it was somehow changed to Snowsville, just to, for brevity, I guess, and flourished as a village center with a post office, a general store. There's even stories of a hearse house where they stored the town hearse, an undertaker in the basement of the hotel, which is kind of macabre, but and a variety of other mills functioning to produce everything from wood to cider to flour and remained that way as a, as a thriving settlement right until the, really until the early part of the 20th century. The flood of 27 had its effect on all parts of Braintree, but, and many things were destroyed in Snowsville. 
My understanding of the name Snowsville and who it was named for, I think the biggest reason the village popped up, my suspicion based on timelines, is the railroad was working its way from Burlington down to Windsor. The goal was to get to Windsor. And in 1848, it had arrived in Northfield and was headed towards Roxbury. And so there was a big push to figure out which which side of Braintree the railroad was going to go on. And Snowsville was well positioned because they were close to on the road to Randolph, good water power for restocking water tanks on the railroad. But it ended up going on the other side of town into West Braintree. And so the train station was there. And I don't know how much it hurt East Braintree, Snowsville, but it, it was definitely a, a deciding moment in Braintree's history. Do you know who named it Snowsville? I don't. Uh, there's no, to my knowledge, there's no record of any kind of official naming or who is credited with the name. How they come about is either through municipal action, someone decides, okay, we're going to name this, or just local spoken word histories. So maybe it was a derivation of here's where Jeremiah Snow had his mill and things started popping up around it and it became Snow's Village and then eventually shortened to Snowsville. It is unincorporated, so there's really no paperwork or any kind of charter or anything that says, here's the village, we're naming it this, and it, it's bounded by XYZ. It's, it's just completely unincorporated. But it's te- like when you drive into that part of Braintree, into the Snowsville area, it actually says East Braintree. So that's the official. Yeah, that's, that's the more official name. And even that is... I don't know what kind of, there's no governmental connection to East Braintree. It's still really a place name, but because of Braintree's geography with two valleys separated by a ridge, it kind of makes sense that you would have, you know, it's more descriptive, really. It's East Braintree and that's West Braintree and then Braintree Hills in the middle. Do people call it East Braintree or do they call it Snowsville? Oh, they do. It's kind of interchangeable. I mean, I think if you're particular, if you're trying to refer to a geographical place on the map, it's Snowsville. If you're referring to part of the town, it's East Braintree. If I give people directions to my house, I say, I'm a mile south of Snowsville. You know, I couldn't say the same thing about East Braintree because it's just, I don't know. I don't know. Right. Maybe I could. Maybe you could. (laughs) Right. I remember when I first heard the name Snowsville a couple years ago, I saw it on a jar of honey I was buying. It said Snowsville, and I was curious about the name. And then I Googled it, and I came across this article from 1985. It was an Associated Press story, and Snowsville has that kind of perfect Vermont name. And of course, it has nothing to do with snow. It doesn't snow more in Snowsville than other places. But it has that name that's sort of sort of romantic. Do people ask you about the name much, or is it like... You know, I haven't... You sort of take it for granted that it's just Snowsville, and and I don't think a lot of people really think here too much about it. When people come into other places, I've never been asked about it. I mean, at the Historical Society Museum, occasionally people will look at maps and say, oh, what's Snowsville? And you can explain, but it's never a, it's more a question of just interest in the place as opposed to the name itself. You were talking earlier about what used to be in, in Snowsville, and so there was a, a sawmill there, a gristmill. You mentioned a hotel. What was the hotel's name? The hotel in Snowsville had several different names. It was and it was built as a hotel in eighteen I'm not sure exactly the date, eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. It was called the Tavern Stand at one point. It was called the Snowsville Hotel. It was called the Hotel. 
And now it's really just, people refer to it as the hotel or the old hotel. It's still there. It's, it's in rough shape. It was threatened with demolition, but it's a pretty interesting building in that it was built you know, with small rooms and a dance floor, a sprung dance floor on the second floor that's still you know, intact and has a really interesting timber frame underneath the floor to create more stability for dancing. It has some, a bunch of chimneys. Gosh, I think at one point there were four or five chimneys on the building. Oh, wow. And behind the hotel was a potato distillery where they were making, pre-prohibition, they were making potato spirits. So there was a, you know, in addition to that, there was a blacksmith shop around the corner. There was the store, which is the Snowsville store, which has been in operation since the early 1800s. It's not really operating today, but it, you know, it still stands and, and reads as a store with a front porch. And, and then the church, which was moved from Peth in the 18, early 1800s. There was a schoolhouse. Oh, there is still a schoolhouse, two-story schoolhouse that was built later on, early 20th century or, or late 1900s just up the road from sort of the center of Snowsville. And it was called the Snowsville School. And people were there, students were there until I think the 1960s actually was when the last class graduated and moved on to the high school. And you mentioned Peth. You said that the church moved from Peth to Snowsville. So speaking of place names, Peth is another name of a place in Braintree. And you've got Peth, you've got Quaker Hill, Mud Pond, Twin Beaches, and I've heard of Lost Nation. Are there any of these that you could talk in some detail about, about how they got their names? Yeah, Path to start with is a really interesting one, and there's really no consensus in terms of the historical record of where that name came from. There's several different theories. One is that it was the heart of, it was sort of the center of Braintree, and so the word may have come from Pith, Here's the center, it's the pith. And there's other that are other stories, anecdotes about its name that are kind of less <laughs> generous. In that, <laughs> I think I read one of yeah, those, yeah. You know, just that it was a, there was one traveler who couldn't find a place to stay and so was kind of cursing the place and called it path. Where that comes from and what that really, what that right. term means in a derogatory sense, I don't know. But that's a name that stuck and was another unincorporated area in Braintree that at one point had its own post office and a lot of mills. That was kind of the heart of the mill because there was the brook that runs through there. Spears Brook was, has a lot of vertical drop and so they could really, the dams were very active and a lot of, there was a big cider mill in Path. Some of the other places, Twin Beaches was on Braintree Hill area and there were two beech trees whose who had one branch each that grew together into this arch. And it stood there for, I mean, it was known, I think, for over 100 years. And then at some point, someone noticed that the one of the branches was starting to die. And an old town historian, Catherine Duclos, actually cut the branches down and donated them to the Historical Society. I actually don't know if we still have those or what happened to them, but it's still referred to as Twin Beaches. And some of the other place names that have stuck, Quaker Hill was named apparently because I don't know if there were actual Quakers there, but the people who lived there were known to eat with their hats on, which was apparently a Quaker. Quakers didn't remove their hats, so that was how that name got placed. And Mud Pond is the largest pond within Braintree's borders. The water has kind of fluctuated in it. Right now, last time I was up there, 
it was pretty low, but it was known as a very good fishing spot. It's privately owned, but access has kind of been loosely granted to people for recreation purposes. It's really beautiful and one of the more wild places in Braintree in terms of the geography and and Lost Nation is an interesting one because you it's you hear it in other places in Vermont. Do you know where that comes from? I think it's connected with East Granville, which borders Braintree on the west side. And to my knowledge, it's an area that runs along the ridge of Braintree Mountain between Braintree and Rochester and is kind of this hilltop area that was more or less, it was a way people passed between the Third Branch Valley over into Rochester for commerce and and travel. And, you know, I think it just became a sort of a wild place where there are a lot of hunting camps there still. I know that. Beyond that, I'm not sure how... I think that term Lost Nation is kind of a romantic... You, you hear it a lot in terms of places that feel wild, especially com- in colonial or settling times. So it probably just stuck from, it was probably a holdover from that. I don't know. Yeah. Again, it's hard, so hard to know where these place names come from and who, who named it that first. I was having a conversation with Richard Bowen, a member of the Historical Society, and he was a town clerk, a lister, a town moderator. He was born just outside of Snowsville, and he still lives in Braintree today. We were talking about place names, and he mentioned that. I said, well, do you think some of these names might be forgotten in a couple of generations. He said, you know, some of the old timers might call, still refer to places as Quaker Hill or Lost Nation. And he thought that was definitely a possibility. Does that sound like that might be a possibility? Yeah. And I I think it's reading back in this, in the Braintree history book, there were place names that we don't know that are lost today from earlier times. So I think it's a constant I think these place names evolve and the ones that really stick stick and the ones that, you know, eventually the last person who called it that is gone and and you lose that place name. It's also challenging, I think, to connect old place names to present day. It it really only takes like one or two generations of people who haven't called it by such and such to know that that's what it was called. And and the history books often refer, you know, the, the first one was written in 1890, and it referred to owners, people who owned property in the 1890s. So you, you'd say, oh, it was over by the Ebenezer farmhouse. And that's long gone. So how do you connect, how do you reform those ties to these old places? Even the update, the Braintree History update that was done during the bicentennial used the names of owners at that time. So even now, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years later, it's hard to know where was this place? It doesn't exist on a map. It's really in people's memory, and unless that memory is being shared, yeah, eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to drop off. The other thing I think that's interesting about place names in terms of oral tradition is that if you're not from a place, if you're moving to a place and you're trying to learn the place names, it's almost a way, and I don't think it's, I think it's inadvertent, but it's kind of a way of separating the people who've lived there forever from the new people, because you don't know those names. You know, they're, they're not on, you can't Google them. They don't show up on an internet search. So you really have to kind of get to know a place and ask somebody, you know, what's, what is this? I was over here. What is this? Why is it called Rolling Rock? Why is it called Mud Pond? Or where is Mud Pond? How do I get there? And it requires a real amount of connection to the people who are there already. So it's an interesting way that communities can kind of build themselves or separate themselves 
through these shared place names. Tell us about Rolling Rock. Rolling Rock is a really interesting geological feature in Braintree. My understanding is that it's a glacial erratic that was left here with the recession of the glaciers, but it's a giant boulder that's about the size of a small school bus that sits up on Braintree Hill. And for generations, it was perched just so that you could actually rock the stone. It was kind of on a fulcrum point. At some point, whatever was holding it up crumbled and it now just sits, but it's still this massive stone with a plaque that kind of tells a little bit about the history of it. And it's Rolling Rock Road is a is a town road that leads to it. It's connected with Mud Pond. It's very closely, it's in close proximity to Mud Pond. So if you're exploring the Mud Pond area, you may find yourself at Rolling Rock. So these kind of, these places can kind of stitch together. When you were talking about how names might get lost in a couple of generations. Is the historical society, is there anything you can do to help preserve those names? I think, you know, the historical society can, we do preserve those names just by talking about those places. You know, when we have our museum open and people are visiting and looking at different artifacts and asking where they came from or reading about where such and such was found, you know, we're able to describe, oh, that was, that was found on Thresher Road or that was Connecticut Corners was where this house used to stand. And so, it's a chance to engage and share those names and maybe point to a map and say, here's where you can find Connecticut Corners. Here's where <laughs> this exists. I think the Braintree History Books has done a good job of of at least recording a lot of place names, whether they connect them to... This has always been my problem with these history books is they, they just don't make these connections between describing a house on such and such a road that may not have the, the same road name as it did in 1890 and being able to look at it today and say, oh yeah, that's the, you know, I always wish there was a clearer line between today and the place names that are talked about in some of these older history books. Right. So I think there there is work we could do to better connect those place names to real places on the map. Yeah. Do you think there's a certain attachment to these names? I think they do. I think the place names are a real part of the history of any town. And so when you're able to talk about those places or remember events that happened at those places or people who lived in those places. It's a way to connect yourself to a place. And I think that one thing that historical societies can do really well is foster this sense of place that people can have in their towns. Every Vermont town, I mean, that's the most amazing thing. Every Vermont town has these immense layers of history and place names that have great stories so I think, you know, creating that sense of place through place names and, and learning about place names is the real strength that, that we can, as a historical society, have and that other historical societies have, too. When you think of these places like Snowsville and Peth, do they have a certain feel to them? Like, do you know you're in them when you're there? I do, because I'm in them enough and I know people who live in, in these areas that I can associate. I think when you live in a place and you know a place by its name, you have associations with either experiences you've had there or people you know who live there. And so they do, it's just like going into someone's house. You know, it has a different, every place has a different feel. Path is on a hill as a cyclist that's really hard to ride because it's just long and it's the steady incline, but it's a, it's a hill and the houses are tightly spaced. There was a house that unfortunately burned down a couple of years ago that was 
probably within 12 feet of the next house. I mean, it's the some of the tightest development in all of Braintree. And it was done because one side of the road was the houses. The other side of the road were the mills. And you lived across, you had, these mills were tightly packed on this great source of power and around several different dams. And so it developed a, a sense of massing in terms of how the houses are laid out. That's very unique. You don't see that in Snowsville where things are kind of arranged around this intersection next to the brook and you have it's a lot more of a village type spacing. West Braintree is different too because Route 12A that runs along the third branch of the White River is a long straight road on flat ground and so you have houses kind of neatly lined up along the road with the town the new town hall built in 1890 or 1900 and then the old where the railroad station was nearby so there was it, it was set up completely differently you know they had they weren't struggling with a steep hill where they had to build their houses close to the dams they could spread out a little more so each of these places is kind of bound by its patterns of development and geography water sources, transportation routes, and they all, they have a fingerprint and they all look different. You know, that's everywhere in Vermont. And that's what makes it such an interesting place to, to travel around and see kind of how these patterns evolved in different places. And, and then how those names, you know, how those names refer to the place and what that says about how the place was settled. Do you have any idea if that is unique to Vermont? Like other New England States, do they have this? I have no idea. I mean, I think pa- I think these kind of patterns of development, especially when you're talking about the 19th century, which is sort of when most Vermont towns and a lot of New England towns really built up in around the end of the 18th into the 19th century. I think there probably is some similarities. You know, the geography is so different. I think that's probably the big deciding factor. You know, main towns set up along, especially coastal. I mean, Maine, it's even, it's not even worth talking about. So it's such a huge state and there's so many different ways that communities were set up, but probably parts of New Hampshire. I think anytime you have a waterway, that sort of becomes the starting point for development and then things branch out from there. I think Vermont is unique in that our towns were so small based on what was available in terms of land. So it, it, I think it probably is unique. You know, you always yeah. know when you're in Vermont, when you've crossed the border <laughs> into Vermont. It just <laughs> looks different. The horizon's different. And that, I think, affects how our towns are laid out for sure. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, so when folks from Connecticut, the early settlers came up, the model was six by six, right? Six miles by six miles is how you would map out a town. But the topography of Vermont, that's not always possible. So you don't have that maybe same blueprint. Yeah. I think when people were laying things out from a distance and when they got here, it was <laughs> a kind totally of a different, different, yeah, different maps, really. If you had to do it all over again, how would you divide Vermont towns up? You know, probably not. I think of East Granville as just the perfect example. You know, it's separated from Granville proper by a pretty significant mountain range. It's closer to Braintree, it's closer to Randolph, it's closer to Roxbury than it is to Granville itself. And yet there's a there's a settlement there of people who have, you know, have been there for a long time. So, yeah, you wouldn't do that if you knew that there was a mountain there. You'd probably <laughs> divide it right along the top of the ridge. But, yeah, we're stuck by these two-dimensional maps that had a different idea of what Vermont was going to be like. Yeah. 
It's, it makes it so interesting. Yeah. And then I was reading some interesting things about the the town's history, and I read this one piece, and I had never heard it before. About is it? Do you pronounce it Ayersbrook or Ayersbrook? Ayersbrook. So Ayersbrook was named after James Ayers, and he was a deserter of New England, who was hanged near the brook in 1755. Can you talk about that? Is that true? Well. I mean, is it true? Yeah, that's <laughs> such a hard question to answer. The naming of Ayersbrook, I think, to me, is one of the more fascinating pieces of Braintree history. And it's something that the Historical Society has been talking about recently. There's a program where you can get these roadside markers. There's a legends and lore category where you can apply for a roadside marker that is not entirely based on hard history, but is a local legend. And the naming of Ayersbrook is one of those local legends that I think is just really fascinating. And that's the story. The story goes, as you said, his first name is hard to come by. I've heard Jonathan Ayers. I've heard James Ayers. I've heard several different iterations, always with a J. So maybe there's a kernel of truth there. But he had deserted the English and was working as a scout for the uh, during the French and Indian War and was captured by the British somewhere along Ayers Brook. And the story that I've read about how he was hanged is by bending a sapling, a big sapling over, tying him to it by his neck, and then releasing the sapling. And so he was sort of this sprung hanging. And Richard Bowen can tell you a story about going to school at the Snowsville School and doing a segment on the naming of Ayers Brook and going and and someone took them down to the brook by Snowsville and said this is the spot oh where where Ayers was hanged. I've done a fair amount of research to try to dig up any kind of information about where this story came from and have found nothing. So it could very well be a legend or a, or a piece of local lore that's been handed down. One of the other pieces that I've heard connected to that which I've only read it in one place so I'm not sure if it's true or not is that Ayersbrook extends into Randolph, and there were stories of ghosts riding horses through the hay fields along Ayersbrook in Randolph. And when the school, when Randolph High School had to name its mascot, they called themselves the Galloping Ghosts after the, you know, the ghost of Mr. Ayers, who was wow. hung along its brook. How that's connected, I, I don't know, you know. It's so interesting, though, and I, it's one of those place names that I, just, I think... You know, it's definitely the darker yeah, side darker. of history, but yeah. it's it's fascinating. You know, yeah. and I think what's really interesting about it is it connects us back even further in history to the French and Indian War, when you know there really wasn't much happening in this part of the state in terms of settlement. I mean, that was pretty early days for Central Vermont settlements. You know, the Connecticut River Valley may have had a little more development, but here we were still pretty. It was still pretty rustic. And most people know that who live in Braintree know about that lore and legend of. I don't know. It's it's in the history books, but I've talked to several people who've never heard the story. And they're not teaching it at the. No, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I mean, you really have to have to frame it as a story, not real history. And then another, I read about a hundred years after James Ayers was hanged near the brook, that there were these four teeth that were more than four inches long of a mammoth animal that was found in 1858. Is that in the Historical Society now, in the we, museum? No, where those teeth ended up is anybody's guess, but I, I have read that story too. And I, you know, that, I think it point, to me, it points to the most interesting part of local history in that 
most of it is not based on primary sources. It's not based on historical research. It's based on oral traditions and, and stories that were shared. So sure, maybe someone was digging along Ayersbrook and found, and found some teeth of some, some kind and told somebody about it or showed them to somebody. And it's like the game of telephone. You know, it just sort of passes around town and eventually the teeth are four inches long and they were part of a mammoth skull. You know, so I love those stories, but I'm also, I look at them as a historian with sort of a, a grain of salt and say, where's the, you know, if we had the teeth in the historical society, then we could say, okay, yeah, this was real. And that's what's also so fascinating is that research is there to be done. If somebody wants to dig into it and look for primary sources or find an article in the paper that was written at the time that talks about it, you know, until then it's, it's kind of like stories in a book, so, which are no less interesting. You grew up in Northfield and your mom's family was among the early settlers in town. Can you talk about your family's history? Yeah, so I did grow up in Northfield. My mom's family, was her family were actually part of the early settlers of Braintree. My great-grandmother still lived here when I was a kid, and, and she lived in West Braintree. Her father was town clerk for many, many years. She was assistant town clerk for many, many years. And the town clerk's office was actually in their house in West Braintree before an official office was built. And actually that was kind of how it went for Richard's mother. Richard Bowen's mother was town clerk and the office was in her house. So it was kind of which, wherever you lived was where the office was. But my mother's family are connected with the Flint family, which is an old Braintree family. The first Flints came here as settlers after the initial subdivisions were made in Braintree, Massachusetts. They were not the original proprietors, but they purchased their piece of land from one of the original proprietors. And there's been Flint's, I mean, it's still a very large family in Braintree. My mother's family was kind of a smaller branch of that family. So I'm kind of second or third cousins to a lot of the current Flint's. As kids, we would come to Braintree to visit my great grandparents and we would go to Old Home Sunday at the Braintree Meeting House and go to the museum and my mother's a avid genealogist, so we're always walking through the cemeteries and pointing out this person is your your great great grandfather. And so I grew up kind of learning that we had this great connection to Braintree. And so when the chance came to move here, it was a real. It just felt like kind of a homecoming to me. You know, maybe not to anybody else from Braintree. But when you start to meet people and you say, "Oh, my mother's family is part of the Flint family." suddenly you realize you're connected with a lot of other people. So that connection to town is really important to me and something I'm really grateful for. You were learning about the local history from a young age. Did that, were you passionate about history or Braintree history from an early age? History, definitely. My, you know, I think I owe a lot of that to my parents, my mother especially. When we were kids, my mom found this old dump behind the house that was kind of a farm dump down by the brook, and it was full of bottles and, you know, old tin cans and things like that. And, and you know, once my brother and I found out that that was there, we would just spend hours digging through this pile and unearthing these artifacts, you know, that we thought were really interesting. But, you know, they were just sort of early 20th century household bleach bottles and things like that. But it really was just, to me, it was like, that was my earliest memory of really feeling like a part of history. Having a connection to people who were around before and who lived lives in the places we are living our lives and how, you know, it just gives you, it gave me a chance to think about 
how different their life must have been or how similar it was to the things that you know we were doing in our life and and then we went to countless house museums and and the Shelburne Museum every summer multiple times and we went to Williamsburg and so that sense of history was something I grew up with and have always really felt thinking about history reading history books is one of those places where my mind just sort of doesn't need any help. I just, I'm able to dive in and imagine these people and these places and to be able to live in a place where I feel that connection to history is really just magical. It's the reason I ride my bike around town all the time because it's just the perfect bike. The bike is the perfect speed to kind of absorb what's around you and to just think about the history, you know, that's all over the place. As someone who grew up in Vermont, were you someone like many of us, myself included, could you not wait to get out of Vermont when like you were in, did you go to high school in Vermont? Yeah. Yeah. And then were you like, well, you went to Ithaca, right? For your undergrad. Yeah. Did you feel that urge to leave and then yes. come back? Yeah. I, I definitely was excited to leave Vermont after high school. I spent my first year of college in Wisconsin and that was about as far away as I could get from Vermont. And I realized, you know, about halfway through that that maybe I wanted to be a little closer to Vermont, but not like right in Vermont. So I took a year off and lived with my parents and worked some odd jobs and then and then went away to Ithaca and, and spent, I graduated from there and then spent another three years and then I was ready to come home. And it wasn't really until I was home and sort of settling in that I realized, oh, I'm not gonna leave here again. Like I, this is where I feel, I always felt that when I would come home to visit, crossing the border, you know, crossing from New York into Vermont, it was always like, oh, okay, this is, it, felt, it just felt like, you know, the perfect pair of shoes or something, you know? So I think I, at that point, I said, I'm not, I, I don't want to live any other place. And I just kept getting closer and closer to where I grew up, which is not something I ever thought I would do. <laughs> Braintree's about as close as I can get. And you went to UVM yep. for graduate school and studied historic preservation? Yeah. Yeah, you, I, I quickly realized that my undergraduate degree in film and photography had been an amazing experience and one that I would never trade, but not one that I really wanted to work in. And I realized that throughout the time I was studying film and photography, I was mostly interested in old buildings. Every picture I took had an old building in it. Every, you know, if I could get inside a building and take pictures, the more dilapidated, the better. That was when I really felt like I was having a good time. Or using old cameras. I, I really got into using kind of archaic cameras or old processes that were not really around anymore. And I just realized more and more that history and heritage and the built environment were the things that really, you know, got me excited. When did you join the Braintree Historical Society? I joined the Braintree Historical Society soon after we moved here. So probably we've been here 13 years and it was probably within three years. So probably 10 years, maybe. Do you have a favorite place in Braintree? Oh, it's like picking a kid, you know. My gut is the to say the Braintree Hill Meeting House. That place is one of the places that we would come to often growing up to Old Home Sunday or to go to the, the the cemetery there is just beautiful. A lot of amazing slate stones from from early days of Braintree. Uh, some interesting inscriptions on the stones that are fun to read if the if the light is hitting them just right and you can actually read them. That place feels really special to me. My mom's family 
held a pew box at the old church from the early 1800s onward. Their names are still on the little pew ledger. So that that place has a really special family connection to me. As an architectural historian and a preservationist, being in that space just is amazing because it's essentially untouched from the mid-1800s. There's really no electricity. There's no plumbing. It's a pretty well-preserved historic building. So whenever I'm in that space, I feel a real connection to to the town's history. I think because it just... It serves such an important function for civic life, for religious life. You know, it was it was really the heart. That's where town meeting was held. That's where people got married. That's where, you know, funerals were held. So it's just a everything kind of culminates for me at the Braintree Hill Meeting House. My other favorite places are we have a I think almost nine miles of class four roads and legal trails, which is when you compare us to our, some of the surrounding towns is a lot. That's a lot of the town has dedicated itself to not giving up its, its right of way on some of these incredible roads. So when I'm on my bike on a quiet road with stone walls on both sides and cellar holes in the woods, that's sort of in general, my, maybe my second favorite place to be. I think about roads a lot. I don't know why. It's just sort of a, I think roads... In the settlement days, you needed a lot of roads because travel was so difficult. So you always wanted the shortest distance between any two points. So it made sense to build just way more roads than you really needed. And maintenance was minimal. And now travel is so easy and maintenance is so costly that we've given up all these roads. So being able to be in these places where roads were so vital and really connected the town and connected people to each other, to their neighbors, to you know, to the train station, to Randolph, where they could go and sell whatever they'd produced on their farms. That is another place where I think a sense of history really comes alive for me, is on some of these mildly abandoned roads. How would you describe Braintree to someone? Braintree is beautiful. You know, we're a town with two valleys and a ridge. We are I haven't done it in a while, but I think we're the geographical center of Vermont. If you if you make an if you make a line between the corners, I think we're pretty close to the center of Vermont. It's just a, a naturally beautiful place with an immense sense of history and a terrific group of people who live here. You can learn more about the Braintree Historical Society by visiting braintreevt.gov. Thanks for listening to Happy Vermont. I'm Erica Housekeeper. I'd like to thank Jane Dorney and Braintree resident Richard Bowen for their time helping me research this episode. And if you know of little-known unofficial places in Vermont that have interesting backstories, send me an email at hello at happyvermont.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you soon.